It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. I had the privilege of growing up in Oregon, not in this area, but uh, much farther north and east. So I know a little bit about rain, and I know a lot about the beautiful Oregon woods, and it's a pleasure again to be with you tonight and to remember those wonderful camp meetings in Gladstone. This has brought back some of those very pleasant memories. And I hope that as we meet together four times this weekend, that we will bond in fellowship with one another with our wonderful God. Have you thought about what it would be like, really and truly, to meet God face to face? We talk about it. I grew up in this state where it seemed to ring from every pulpit, Jesus is coming again. You remember that back in the 60s, 70s? That was a constant theme that I grew up with. In fact, the time of trouble was so imminent that uh, I used to imagine that it would start, and, and at that time we lived at Laurelwood Academy, and I just knew that the, someday the school would be owned by the opposition and that um, I might be taken captive from my parents. It seems so imminent that I have friends who actually played that out on Sabbath afternoons, the game of the opposition and the persecuted. <laughs> that, those were the days, and we used to talk about Jesus coming again, and it was sort of like it wasn't so much the focus on Jesus as it was on the end. I remember sitting with my grandmother, in Dorcas, their little church, and I had to sit there several hours, and of course I was bored like any child. And so I looked around the room for something to look, gaze on, and I found this plaque that said, Work for the night is coming. And that seemed to depict this wonderful good news about Jesus coming again. And it makes me wonder, if we really thought about what it will be like to meet God face to face, and if it doesn't seem to be a rather dark picture sometimes, what if... Tonight, God walked in through that opening and all the way down to the front. What would be your response? Would you be excited? Would you be frightened? No, of course, if Jesus came down to the front, it wouldn't be so frightening, would it? We grow up praying to Jesus because he's the friend of children and sinners and, and he was one of us. But, but if God himself showed up, what would be our reaction? This reminds me of an experience I had in college. I decided that it was time to see the world and so I traveled back to the middle of the country to Michigan to attend college. And um, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody to room with, and so I simply got assigned to a room. When I walked into the room, there were two empty beds, except that one of the beds held a stack of records. And I walked over to the records and began flipping through and found that these were heavy rock records that contained rather satanic-looking pictures on the covers. And... Uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in that room, but I decided to make the best of it. Well, pretty soon my roommate came in, and we made our introductions, and she said, what is your major? 
I said, a theology major. And she said, oh, no, now I have to be really good. What if you went home tonight and you saw that somebody's moving in next door and you went over and said, my name's so-and-so, I'm your new neighbor. Um, who are you? And they said, I'm God. Now, of course, you probably would question their pathology a little. But suppose God really did move next door to you. What would be the reaction? Oh, no, I have to be really good now. God's next door. Why is it that we are so somewhere deep in our side, our minds, and we won't admit it, we are so afraid of God? I've had people tell me I'm not afraid of God when they were terrified of him. And, and they were shaking almost from head to foot while they said it. We tend to deny that to ourselves, much like an abused child will deny that they're afraid of their father who abuses them. Why? You don't admit that. When you're an abused child, you don't admit that you are afraid of someone who has abused you. After all, if you found out you admitted that, you'd be in trouble. And somehow we deny it, but it's there. That we're really deep inside afraid if God were to come in this tent tonight and sit down among us. Somehow we find that a bit frightening. Well, maybe there's a reason. You remember in Exodus 33 and 34, God visited Moses on Mount Sinai and Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, no one can see my face and live. So maybe God wouldn't come in through the door of that tent and, and come and be with us because we couldn't live in his presence. Now, why wouldn't we be able to live in his presence? Is his face so threatening that we would die of fright? Is his face so bright that it, and dazzling that we would die from that? What is it about God's face which makes us unable to live in his presence. You remember that when God passed before Moses, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and he passed before Moses. And Moses only saw what? The backside of God. What does that mean, to see the backside of God? And why is the backside of God able to be seen by us and not his front side? Does God's glory fade as he turns his back? What happens in chapter 34 when Moses comes back down from the mountain? What happens? The people run from him in terror. Why? His face shone from seeing the backside of God. And, and that is probably less glory than the face, and the people are seeing reflected secondary glory from that. It's like telling the story the third time. It doesn't get it out quite right. It's a little darkened. <laughs> um, and the people are so terrified that they run from Moses. And Moses has to put a veil on his face. And I used to think of that as a wedding veil, you know, something that you could still see Moses' face, but you didn't see the glory as much. No, a veil in the Middle East to this day is a black piece of garment and there's two veils that go something like this and they cover everything with the eyes. 
And Moses had to put that veil on his face every time he had been talking with God. What is it about this that makes it unable, unable for us to, to live in God's presence? What is it that makes that light too bright? Or is it that the light is too bright? Couldn't God just dim the lights? We do that all the time, don't we? When I ask where this problem begins, I always think of Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles with you, which, by the way, um, those of you who maybe forgot to bring them, I would highly recommend tomorrow that you bring them because you'll get a lot more out of the discussion. I have threatened sometimes in my classes to say that students aren't present unless they have their Bibles. But um, I won't do that to you tonight. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, we have the story of where this whole problem began. And the story centers around the problem of fear. The serpent is more subtle, crafty, whatever, cunning, perhaps, than any other wild animal that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of the, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide from God? Now, this is the phenomena of human nature. We talk about how wonderful it would be to be in heaven. But the truth is, we're always trying to hide from God. We aren't really wanting to be close to him. We tend to really be more comfortable at a distance from him. Why is that? What was it? that happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil that made Adam and Eve afraid of God. Now, of course, it says right here in the text, their eyes were opened, and then he knew they were naked. Now, tell me, were they not naked before? It says in chapter 2, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked from the day God created them. Nothing changed in terms of their clothing physically. But the eyes were open and they knew they were naked. They simply hadn't known that before. What had changed? Well, of course, there's one way to explain that. That Adam and Eve were in the beginning clothed with the light of the glory that shone from God's face. And the question, of course, is what is that glory? And that God withdrew that glory from them? Or did they get rid of the glory? What happened there in the garden? 
And that's why I find this story so significant and so important. You see, we have minimized what happened in the fall and what happened to bring sin into this world. We have minimized it to what I do with my hand or what I do with my mouth or what I do with my feet. We have minimized it to breaking rules. We have minimized it to certain taboos. But sin is far more far-reaching than anything we really usually describe. And what happens here is not about fruit. Did Eve sin when she touched the fruit? Before. The serpent placed the fruit in her hands, didn't he? That's, That's our understanding of that story. So, Was her sin when she ate the fruit? Was the sin, did the sin directly have to do with the fruit itself? Was it lurking in the fruit? Is that why God said to Eve, or to Adam, don't eat of this fruit, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die? Was the fruit poison? You see, it's it's our tendency to put this all into a little box, and, and then we could just distance ourselves from it and, and not feel like we're so sinful. But the truth is that the fruit is only a symbol of knowledge about something. Knowledge about something about God. Now, what was that knowledge? Knowledge of good and evil? Is God good? You remember that the serpent tells the woman, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, implying that God knew good and evil. In my most recent study of this passage, having to do with our Sabbath school lessons, I concluded that what Satan does is lead Eve's mind through the paradigm of an abuser. First of all, Has God said, he suggests that God doesn't make his requirements clear. He doesn't make what is supposed to be in terms of our relationship with him. He doesn't make the terms of our relationship clear. If a person who doesn't do that, who manipulates and twists, is an abuser. So right off the bat, he gives the first sign of that God is an abuser. And then he says, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the Garden of Evil, implying, the Garden of Eden, implying that God is maybe saying, I am restricting you from everything that's good. And of course, he knows that Eve's going to bite on that, and she's going to say quickly, oh no, no, it's not any tree, it's just this one tree in the midst of the garden. And then she misquotes God, including the words, "You shall neither shall you touch it, which God never talked about. And so the serpent says to the woman, flat out, you will not die. God has lied to you. He has threatened you. All of this is the portrait of an abuser. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
your eyes will be opened to the point where you can gain the power of God, the power of knowledge, the power of wisdom, the power over the universe, because if you know good and evil, you know everything. And there's a subtle twist in that good and evil. An abuser is very good sometimes. Uh, in cases of abuse, we know that abusers are so good sometimes to the, the people that they victimize that the person thinks there's no way in the world they could be as bad as I think they are at other times and they feel guilty for ever thinking that the abuser could be evil. So to know good and evil is the prime example of an abuser. And what Satan did is portray God as abusive to his creatures. That's what entered Satan's mind, I mean, entered Eve's mind, and began to twist her thinking. It began to reform everything she thought about her reality around her, about God in particular, and thus about how she viewed herself and Adam. And the results of this twisted picture of God from a friendly, trustworthy God who, who wanted to be close to them, from that picture, she moved into a picture of him as someone to be afraid of. And that picture works itself out in the rest of the story, by the way, Adam and Eve twist the truth about their problem when God comes to visit them. And of course, once you accept that picture of God, when he comes to see you, you're afraid and you want to hide. There's something very, very real about this whole process. I remember one of my students telling me, if someone ever talks to me badly about someone the next time I see that person, my whole view of them is never the same again, even if I don't believe it. Something's happened to my mind. Now, you think about that, especially if you're, when you were a child. Um, back when you were in fourth grade, say, suppose one of your friends told you, I know the truth about your dad. I know what he's done to other children. What would you do? No, no, my dad is not like that. And suppose you didn't believe it at all. You knew better. If you went home that night and your dad sat across the table from you, would you be able to see him in quite the same way? Or would you wonder if? That's how serious this whole thing does is to the mind. It does something to the thinking. That's what sin is. Sin is not merely something I do with my hand or with my eyes or with my mouth or with my feet. Sin is what I do in my mind with the truth. And that's where it began at the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So what does it mean that Eve looked down and saw that she was naked and ran from God and hid? Well, I'd like to go back to Exodus 33 and 34. If you remember the passage where... Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before me, for you. What is God's glory? His goodness, his character. In fact, that word goodness probably does mean character there. 
Uh, it's a Hebrew word that tends to mean totality in some context. And I think that's one of them. So I will make all my goodness pass before you, all my character. And after he passes before Moses, he proclaims his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now, of course, it goes on to sound a little more fearsome. Who will by no means clear the guilty for giving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by whole no, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? Well, the word to visit doesn't mean to punish. It means to probably, it's a ver- verb in the Hebrew that has a very wide range of meanings, everything from mustering an army to um, taking charge of something to overseeing something. Um, it can almost mean anything, but it doesn't usually mean to punish. That has been read into the Hebrew Bible. It's, so I would say here that God is going to oversee and limit the process of evil. He won't forgive in the sense that forgiveness in the Old Testament means to lift up, to get rid of, to restore. When you forgive a person, you lift them up. When you you restore someone, you heal them from the damage done. And when you forgive sin, you remove it from the person. That's Old Testament forgiveness. So when he says, I will not forgive the guilty, that is the people who persist and refuse to accept God's mercy. He won't force them to get rid of sin. But he will instead limit the consequences of their choice to the fourth generation. By the way, studies are bearing this out, that, ab- that abused children, you know, you understand the cycle of abuse, that an abused child becomes an abusive parent, and the next child becomes an abusive parent. It, it's a, we call it the cycle of abuse. The studies have been showing, at least in, in sexual abuse of children, that the third or fourth generation turns around. Which is very interesting in light of what God said. And, and I've seen this in stories I've read about abused children. That it seems that the third or fourth generation says, I'm not going to be that way when I grow up. Um, it's dramatic. That means God is not saying there, I'm going to punish you and I'm not going to be nice and, and loving after that point. No, he's going to limit it. That's why in another place where those same words are used, it ends with and showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So beyond the third and fourth generation, he'll work with the first and the second as much as he can. So that's God's glory. That's his name. Who he is. And there's nothing in there about wrath. There's nothing in there that sounds frightening and harsh. Why then is this glory seemingly so lethal? I would like to propose to you that the glory is less, how do I want to put this? It is as much physical as it is spiritual, but it is the spiritual dimension on which this problem takes place. That sin so changes our minds and so twists and perverts our thinking. You realize that to run from God because you have come to see him as the abuser when he is not, is what we call a state of paranoia. Sin is a state 
of insanity. Oh, I know that we talk about some people being insane. And there is a point at which, yes, they are. But we are all, to some degree, in a state of insanity because of sin. And as a result, the only way in which something can be changed is through the mind. So when Adam and Eve came to be paranoid of God, they saw him as an abuser when he was not. What happens then to God showing up the way he really is? I'm not an abuser, I'm friendly. What happens when you do that with a paranoid person? If, if a paranoid person says, that guy over there, he's, he's out to get me, and you go over and get that guy, and you say, look, you need to talk to this guy and tell him you're not out to get me, what usually happens? It's about the worst thing you can do. When a person is in a state of paranoia, pathological illness, the worst thing you can do is to confront him that he is wrong. Particularly in terms of human relationships. So for God to come up to Adam and Eve in all his glory, which is the glory of love, which is his character, and say, no, I'm not an abuser, I'm really your friend would be the most destructive thing he could do to Adam and Eve. That is why he had to mercifully withdraw his glory. And Ellen White makes a statement in Ministry of Healing that, that when Adam and Eve accepted Satan's lies about God, they basically lost. It was like an, almost a natural consequence. They lost that glory that covered them. That's why they found out they were naked. So this is something very real. It's something that happens in the mind. And you'll understand that better when I talk tomorrow about the final destruction of the wicked and what that entails. But um, basically, this whole sin problem began with the problem of believing a lie or several lies about God as an abusive parent. She says, and I just found a statement here, uh, before the entrance of sin, Adam and even Eden were surrounded with a clear and beautiful light, the light of God. This light illuminated everything which they approached. What does it mean, it illuminated everything which they approached? This is not something light like, well, it is something like this. Um, we turn on a light bulb. It what does what? It helps us to see what we could not see without it. So the light from God's face illuminated nature and enabled them to see something in nature they would not have seen otherwise. It has to do with perception. Light in the Bible has to do with perception of truth. There was nothing to obscure their perception of the character or works of God. But when they yielded to the tempter, the light departed from them. In losing the garments of holiness, they lost the light that had illuminated nature. No longer could they read it aright. No, they could not discern the character of God in its works, in his works. Now, there are several places in the Bible that talk about this. Uh, Psalm 106, 19-20, talks about how God's people at the foot of Sinai exchanged the glory of God What's the glory of God again? 
character. Exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I I, I noticed as we came in tonight, uh, I saw these four bulls, and they were all walking towards the end there where they've been blocked off now so that we can meet here. And they were all looking eagerly like they wanted to join us in worship tonight. Now suppose one of them got out. Hopefully that won't happen. But suppose one of them got out and they came down to the front. What would it take for you to kneel before that bull and say, Dear God, please give me a safe trip home tonight. What would it take for your mind to be able to do that? Honestly and sincerely. Now, no, not playing, but honestly and sincerely. That's a darkening of the mind. And uh, Romans 1 18 and following. Talk about that darkening. It's all in the chapter about God's wrath. That God's wrath is poured out and what it means is he gives people up. Well, in, in um, the verses below it, it says that, uh, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God they, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. What does it mean to be futile in one's thinking? It means to lose something of one's perception to the point where one is on a very low level of thinking. Uh, one can think only cheap thoughts that, that are drivel, really, when you think about it. They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. This is what they're still talking about light. When the light is gone, the darkness is the result. Darkness is the absence of light. They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. This is what they're still talking about light. When the light is gone, the darkness is the result. Darkness is the absence of light. It's when you lose the truth about God and who he is that darkness takes place in the mind. And that corrupts the mind to the point where one could actually worship an animal. They worship the creature instead of the creator, Romans 1 says, who is blessed forever. And so Israel at the foot of Sinai, after seeing the... um, Fire on the mountain, after hearing the voice of God speak to them directly, only 40 days later, they're out there dancing around a golden calf and saying, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. How could they do that? How could their senseless minds be so dark? Why would they pick a bull? Well, the ancients of Mesopotamia used the bull as a symbol for some of their highest deities. Why would they use a bull? Have you ever met one that was trying to defend its herd? <laughs> Especially in Angus. I remember one time I was with my folks. We were walking on a Sabbath afternoon in Arizona. In Arizona, the cattle are often allowed to run pretty free certain areas. We were walking down a road, and uh, all of a sudden I saw an Angus bull standing in the, in the path. And I said, I don't think we want to walk any further. 
And my parents looked and said, oh, there's a bull. So um, my mom and I turned around and got back in the pickup, and my dad <clears throat> decided that it was time to see how close he could get and how friendly and chummy he could get to this bull before he turned on him. And so my dad kept, kept standing there. And we got in the truck and we were going, come on, you know, you better get in here. And pretty soon the bull began to get a little nervous and angry and he began to come toward my dad and then he began to lower his head. About that time my dad decided it was time to get in the pickup. By the time we turned the pickup around and were headed out, the bull was pawing the ground, <laughs> enraged. And of course the next thing you know would be not to want to be standing there. Bulls get angry. They're no one for their temper, are they not? And what happened as human beings' minds became darkened, it became possible for them to see God as wrathful and vengeful and severe. He wasn't just abusive now. He was tyrannical. And if you study the religions of the ancient Near East, as I've had the privilege of doing for my doctoral program, you can easily discern that the topic, the consonant theme that lies in all of those religions, except maybe the religion of Egypt, certainly the religions of Mesopotamia and Canaan, that consonant theme is the anger of the gods and what to do about it. We're going to talk about more of that tomorrow night. But basically, their minds became darkened and they came to misperceive the character of God. So what do you do when your children run from you in terror? When they now perceive you as abusive, when you are not? And you can't just walk up to them and say, I'm not that way, please know the truth, because their minds have been changed to the point where they're in a state of serious paranoia. That's why the theme tonight is God's face veiled. You do like Moses did when he came down from Mount Sinai. You cover up the truth. You veil it. So God, instead of showing Moses his face, said, I'll tell you about it. And the description he gives of his name, I think, is the description of his face. A God gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. God has veiled himself to us human beings in many, many ways. The sanctuary services, according to Hebrews, are but shadow language. How much would we know about trees if all we ever saw was their shadow? Would you ever know that they had bark, that they had leaves, that each leaf was different from another, and that the leaves had pigment? We would know very little. We know very little about the plan of salvation just in the sanctuary services. The sanctuary services are but the symbols of heaven. And according to Numbers 12, 1 to 6, God spoke to his prophets in what is called in my RSV version, dark speech. The Hebrew term is riddles. He spoke to them in riddles, and not plainly like he did to Moses. And originally, God preferred to walk and talk with Abraham in nature. But when the people were too afraid to meet him face to face at the foot of Sinai, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. 
So God has continually veiled himself in words, human words, in dark speech to prophets, in symbols of the sanctuary. He has veiled his glory. And then finally, that was not enough. His people still kept misrepresenting him. And so he decided the only way in which he could set and keep men right was to reveal to them the character of the Father. And so he came as a human being, veiling his glory in human flesh and lived among us. The Bible says he tabernacled among us or he tented among us, he camped among us, would be our modern idiom. He came to our camp meeting and he camped with us and he lived with us. We ate with him, we drank with him and he made himself familiar and visible to our eyes. I believe that the purpose of Jesus' mission was to reveal the truth about the character of God. Because sin came into our minds as a darkening of our thinking processes, as a twisting of our understanding of who God is. The only way then to get rid of sin is to somehow make the truth clear and set us free from our paranoia so that we can love and trust him again. Because it's only through faith, the Bible says, that we can truly be obedient and trustworthy friends of God. Obedience doesn't happen any other way. We can, com- we can get compliance by almost any means. Fear, uh, punishment, reward, manipulation. We can get compliance. But it's only through the truth that sets us free that we get true obedience. And by the way, the, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word for obedience in the Bible means to listen. You remember uh, the statement Samuel made to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams? That word obey is to listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, or one Lord. Uh, that word hear is the same as the word to obey. You can't listen to someone you're afraid of. And if faith is the criteria for salvation, you can't trust someone you're afraid of. The most diametric opposite concept to trust is fear. And that's why in John we read those words that there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. I'm afraid that the Christian community has sanctified fear of God and made it seem to be the most holy and righteous element. And I'm afraid that what they have done is done what, maybe I should say what we have done, let's let's put the guilt where it resides. What we have done is the same thing that the Jews did. Ellen White says that they so misrepresented the character of God that they were actually carrying out the will of Satan. They caused the world to look upon him as a tyrant. And the result was, she says, they were doing exactly what Satan wanted them to do. I hope we don't do that. I believe that the work of Jesus was to reveal the character of the Father, to so win us back to trust that God could heal the damage done by the paranoia of sin. I'd like to read a statement here from an article in Science of the Times, January 20, 1890. 
She says that Satan sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct in the earth. He had caused the truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. The very attributes that belonged to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of the earth. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. Those who would behold this glory, note how she uses the word glory there, you're not talking about brightness now. Those who would behold this glory, who that make himself visible and familiar to their eyes, he did that with veiling his glory, would be drawn to love Jesus and to love the Father whom he represented. Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving to him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth. The whole purpose of his mission on earth to set men right through the revelation of God. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world, the Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and that the character of the Father was made manifest to men. Yet even Jesus struggled with that veil. The disciples, to the very end, did not really fully believe he was God. In fact, their disbelief was what they had to repent of in the upper room before the latter rain could come. They did not believe that Jesus was God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They couldn't get it. In fact, if you follow through that whole three chapters, 14, John 14, 15, 16, right at the end of 16, after Jesus says plainly, I won't need to pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. They say, now... Now we know that you came from God. They still can't grasp he is God. And there's something of a pathos in Jesus' prayer to his Father, almost a sigh that you hear between the lines, when Jesus says, And these know that you have sent them. But he must have longed to be able to say, And these know that I am just like you. They couldn't grasp that. It wasn't until after the resurrection they came in the upper room and reviewed all the evidences of his life and his death and his resurrection that it dawned on them what they had missed in those three and a half years they'd been with him. And they repented of their disbelief. And as a result, the Holy Spirit could be poured out. So Jesus struggled with that veil. He talked in parables and cryptic speech And only one time does he say, I'm going to tell you now plainly about my Father. And that's when he says, I won't need to pray the Father. You can go ahead and pray in my name. But I tell you on that day, I will not pray the Father for you. Oh dear, we're without a mediator. No, because the Father loves you himself. You can pray directly to him. 
No one in between you and God. There's no one in between you and me now. Why should there be between you and God? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. You've seen God. And so Ellen White tells us in the book that I may know him, page 338, had God the Father himself come to our world and dwelt among us, humbling himself, veiling his glory, that humanity might look upon him, the history we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. In sight, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. I believe that though Jesus veiled himself and came so that we could see him as he really is, and we do, that his life alone was inadequate to the, as a solution to the most serious charge that Satan uttered against God. And that charge was, you will not surely die. Jesus' life alone could not answer that charge. And that was the most serious charge, because if God is a liar when he said, you shall surely die, then we can't trust a liar. And if he's telling the truth, then what is going to happen if I sin? Is he going to do something to me? Is sin what hurts me? Is sin what destroys me? Or is God the one who is going to destroy me? Everything in terms of trust and obedience in the truest sense hinges upon the solution to that lie. So Jesus' life could not answer that alone. And tomorrow morning during the worship hour, we will talk about that and how Jesus' death answered that most serious charge. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father, what a privilege it is to talk to you directly because Jesus has shown who you really are. And what a privilege it is to know that Though we have long been afraid of you, we have no need to be afraid of you. That you are a God who is friendly, who is not as Satan has made you out to be. We pray that beginning tonight we may know the truth and that the truth may set us free. That it may begin that process of healing of our minds, of calming our fears, and transforming our lives to become like you. Bless us as we go our separate ways tonight and bring us again tomorrow to think and to discuss and to ponder your character. In Jesus' name, amen.